Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Keep your data private from data harvesters whenever you go online. Go to expressvpn.com slash gold and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. The podcast is also sponsored by Tommy John. Tommy John has the most comfortable all-day wearable fabrics. You deserve to lounge like a champ. Get 20% off on your first order right now at TommyJohn.com gold. One of the indicators a lot of people on Wall Street have traditionally looked to as a determinant of how the market might perform during the year ahead is the first trading week of January. And we just finished the first week today. And in fact, all four of the major stock market averages finished a down week down on the day. The Dow actually held up the best. It only lost about one third of a percent on the week. S&P 500, on the other hand, just under 2% down, 1.9%. Russell 2000 had an even worse week, down 2.8%. But the biggest decline of all was registered by the NASDAQ, which was down 4.5% on the week. In fact, the NASDAQ 100 started the year with the worst week since the year 2000. And that's the year the tech bubble burst and the NASDAQ crashed. So if this year is anything like that year, it's a long way down. And the NASDAQ was led lower by some of the most high-flying speculative names that were big winners, at least for a portion of 2021. In fact, if you take a look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund, and I've talked about that ETF on this podcast in the past, if you look at that as a proxy on some of those high-flying names, the Arc Fund is down 10.75% for the first week of the year. In fact, it's now off 47% from its record high which it registered way back in February of last year. And of course, many of the stocks in Kathy Wood's portfolio are down way more than 10%. In fact, more than a third of the stocks in the NASDAQ are down more than 50% from their 52-week high. Many of those stocks are in the portfolio of ARK Innovation. Also included in some of the biggest decliners are a lot of the newly minted IPOs and SPACs from last year. I pointed out on my last podcast that not only did we set a record in 2021 for IPOs, but we also set a record for money losing IPOs. Well, now a lot of the investors who bought stock in those money losing IPOs are themselves losing money because those stocks are getting completely decimated so far in 2022. In fact, the decimation started in 2021. I've been talking about it in this podcast. And what may not be as obvious to people beneath the sea of red is the rotation that is going on out of these high-flying momentum stocks into value-oriented dividend-paying stocks. Because many of these stocks, including many stocks that I own myself and that we own in our portfolios, made new 52-week highs this week, even as the markets were going down. And even the value stocks that went down didn't go down nearly as much as the momentum stocks. So money is clearly rotating out of the stocks that worked in 2021 into the newer stocks that will work in 2022 and beyond, and that is value dividend-paying stocks, and I think in particular stocks outside the United States. Now, what was the catalyst for the week's carnage? It actually started on Wednesday, and pretty much all these declines have taken place since Wednesday, not really Monday and Tuesday. You know, we were up on Monday, gave some of it back on Tuesday, But the real selling started on Wednesday following the release of the Federal Open Market Committee minutes, Fed minutes. And what surprised the markets, and to an extent it surprised me a little bit, was what those minutes revealed about Fed conversations. The minutes were interpreted as being more hawkish 
than the markets expected. And again, you know, whenever I talk about hawkish with respect to the Federal Reserve, I'm not really talking about hawks because they're extinct, right? They may as well be the dodo bird at the Federal Reserve. Everybody is a dove. We're just talking about degrees of dovishness. And so the Fed was less dovish than the markets had expected. In fact, the takeaway from these minutes is now the Fed may in fact raise interest rates not three times this year, but four. Now, four is not a lock, but the probability of four quarter point rate hikes is higher than it was prior to the release of these minutes. So less dovish, because again, raising interest rates by 1% gradually or three quarters of 1% over the course of a year against the backdrop of the economic data that we have right now is extremely dovish. You cannot describe those itsy bitsy moves in any way hawkish. But I think what really roiled the markets were the comments regarding quantitative tightening. Remember, quantitative tightening is the opposite of quantitative easing. That's when the Fed shrinks its balance sheet. And according to the minutes, the FOMC members are thinking about shrinking the balance sheet around the same time they start raising interest rates, or maybe slightly later, they want to start reducing the balance sheet. So in other words, they're going to go from being a massive buyer of U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities to a seller of those securities. And that's what really spooked the markets because that sent the bond markets tanking. In fact, if you look at the three-day carnage in the bond market, yields on U.S. 10-year treasuries hit a new 52-week high today. We briefly got above 1.8% on the 10-year. Now, there was a little bit of a rally once we hit that level. My guess is you had some short-term profit-taking. Some traders were short treasuries, and they decided to take some profits when we got to that 1.8% level. I would expect that we take that level out next week. Yields on the 30-year, they got as high as 2.15% before backing off to 2.118%. Not quite a new 52-week high because the yield on the 30-year at one point in the last 52 weeks actually got as high as 2.5%. We will take that out maybe even as soon as next week at the rate bonds are falling. And of course, the reason that bonds are falling is if the Fed is going to go from a buyer of bonds to a seller of bonds, clearly that is going to put downward pressure on the bond market. Because after all, you've got more bonds for sale, and so the price is going to go down. But of course, what the markets really don't comprehend is if the Fed actually follows through with this plan, if they actually start to shrink their balance sheet, Bonds aren't going to just fall. They're going to crash. They have a long way to decline, which is why I don't believe the Fed is actually going to do this. I mean, sure, they can talk about it, but doing it is a whole different thing. But the markets still don't understand how bad it would be. You know, I heard this so-called pundit, I guess, on television talking about why he thought the markets were overreacting, the stock market, to the backup in interest rates. Because he said, after all, even if we get to 1.8%, which we've already gotten to, he said this a couple of days ago, but he said, even if we get to 1.8%, what's the big deal? I mean, we were at 1.5, 1.8, that's really not going to derail the economy. That's not going to prevent people from borrowing money. Interest rates would still be really low at 1.8%. And I agree, they would still be really low, assuming they stopped at 1.8%. But why would they? The only reason they got down to the low level that they were was because the Fed was buying all of these bonds and because people were under the impression that there was no inflation. Well, if we have 6.8% inflation, which is the official trailing CPI from the last report we got, let's just call it 7%. So if inflation is 7%, nobody is under the delusion that it's below 2%. And if the Fed is selling treasuries, why should yields stay at 1.8%? They shouldn't. They should go way up. In fact, if the Federal Reserve is no longer buying any treasuries, and in fact, again, selling treasuries, and the U.S. government 
is selling treasuries and the various trust funds like the Social Security Trust Fund are also selling treasuries. Everybody is trying to unload low yielding treasuries. What private buyers are going to buy them? Nobody is going to buy a 10-year treasury yielding 1.8% with a 7% inflation rate. And of course, the real inflation rate is much higher than that. But even if the inflation rate comes down in 2022, let's say it comes all the way down to 3 or 4%, still, why would you want to loan money at 1.8% when you're losing 3 to 4% of your purchasing power every year? You wouldn't. So the reality is if the Fed actually does what it says it's going to do, the bond market would crash, which again is why it's not going to do it. The same thing with all these rate hikes. If the Fed continues to raise rates, not just in 2022, but in 2023, the way they're indicating, the economy is going to move into recession. The stock market is going to move into a bear market. Something is going to happen that is going to cause the Fed to do an about face. It's just amazing to me that people can actually call the proposed Fed policy of gradual weight hikes as being hawkish, as being in any way a tight monetary policy designed to fight inflation. I mean, think about this. Back in 2002, we went into a recession that basically coincided with the bursting of the NASDAQ bubble and the September 11th terrorist attack. So the U.S. economy went into a recession. And so what did the Federal Reserve do in 2002 to try to stimulate the economy in that recession? It slashed interest rates. To what level? 1%. 1% is the level that they were cut to. And I took a look at some of the statistics from 2002. The unemployment rate, was 5.4%. The inflation rate, according to the CPI, was 1.58%. And GDP in 2002 grew at 1.7%. So you had sub 2% GDP growth, well under 2% inflation, and unemployment above 5%. So against that backdrop, the Fed was stimulating. And of course, the stock market had tanked. That was another thing that was going on. You had a big drop in the stock market. And so the Fed was there with that stimulative policy. Well, compare those statistics to today's. First of all, the unemployment rate, and I will get to the jobs numbers later in the podcast because we did have a jobs report that came out today, but the unemployment rate dropped down to 3.9%. We're now at a three handle in the unemployment rate, so under 4%. GDP growth is supposed to be 5.6% for 2021. So we just came out of a strong year of GDP growth, much stronger than the 1.7% in 2002, but the inflation rate at 6.8%, almost 7% inflation. And so with these economic numbers, the Federal Reserve is proposing that it gradually raise interest rates so that by the end of the year, they may be all the way back up to 1%. The same rate of interest that was considered highly stimulative in 2002, now it's considered tight money. The same interest rate that was designed to fight unemployment is now the same interest rate that we're using to fight inflation. Look, if the economy is too cool and you want to heat it up and you do that with 1% interest rate, you can't say, well, now the economy is too hot and we're going to cool it down and we're going to use the same 1% interest rate. When are people going to figure out that even if the Fed does what it claims it's going to do, it will do nothing to cool inflation? Inflation is going to keep getting worse worse, even if the Fed follows through with the rate hikes that it's projecting. And it may not even do that based on the weakness in the markets and the economy that will result. And in fact, some of the price action today is somewhat indicative of some investors finally beginning to figure out what's going to happen. I mean, they only got a small piece of it. If they really knew what was going to happen, we would see much larger moves in the market. But look at what happened today, even as the yield on 10-year treasuries hit a new high for the year. You had a drop in the U.S. dollar index, almost 60 basis points across the board, 
dollar weakness today, even as bonds were falling and yields were rising. And you also had a rally in the gold market. Not a huge rally, but not a sell-off. You know, usually when you get bond yields rising, at least recently, we've seen a sell-off in gold. But today, the price of gold rose by about $6 an ounce. We're still below $1,800, but barely. $1,797 is where we are. So we're pretty much right on 1800 gold is really holding up as bonds are getting killed and what that tells me is the markets again are starting to get it and what they're getting is this the fed is going to tighten monetary policy it's not going to be tight money it's just going to be less loose so they are going to supply the markets with less monetary heroin than they have been supplying, at least initially. I mean, eventually they're going to up the dosage, but certainly in the near term, they are going to gradually reduce the amount of monetary heroin. And what that has already done, just the indication that the dosage is going to be reduced because they haven't even really reduced it yet. They're just laying out a timetable for doing it, although they may have tapered the QE program a little bit already. So they may have slightly introduced it, but you know we don't have the rate hikes yet. We don't have quantitative tightening yet. We just have a timetable for when those policies may be rolled out. But just warning the drug addicts that in the future, they're not gonna have as much drugs as they're accustomed to, and they're already going crazy. So the Fed is going to tighten policy enough to prick the bubble in the most speculative part of the stock market, the meme stocks, the money losing, high multiple companies, the recent IPOs, the crypto space, all of those high flying stocks are crashing because they cannot survive even with less loose monetary policy. And the same thing with the bond bubble. I think the Fed has pricked the bond market bubble and the air is coming out there as well. But here's the key. The Fed is going to tighten policy by enough to prick those bubbles, but not by enough to actually move the needle on inflation. They're not going to get in front of the inflation curve, not even close. So even though they're going to raise rates enough to prick some bubbles, they're not going to slow down the escalating inflation. So investors are selling dollars because the dollar is going to lose value because of inflation. And what are they doing? They are buying gold to a degree. I think they're going to be buying even more gold in the future, but they're also buying natural resources, commodities, The non-gold stocks, industrial metals, agriculture, oil and gas names, extremely strong all week, including today. So investors are getting out of the bubble names because the Fed is pricking that, but they're getting into stocks that do well in an inflationary environment because the Fed rate hikes are too little too late to actually do anything about inflation. And by the way, the same thing is happening to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. They're going down. That bubble was also pricked and the air is coming out and investors, speculators are dumping cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And potentially some of that money is moving into gold. A lot of that money, of course, is just evaporating into money heaven because a lot of the people in cryptos aren't actually selling. But the few people that are, the market is tanking because you don't have enough new buyers. So they don't have anything to rotate because in order to rotate out of one thing into another, you have to sell. But all the Bitcoin hodlers, they're not selling. They're just watching their paper profits evaporate. And they're very complacent because they're going a lot lower. And I will talk a little bit more about Bitcoin later in the podcast. For now, I just want to stay on this topic of the Fed tightening enough to prick certain bubbles, but not nearly enough to do anything about escalating inflation. And so because the Fed's policies will be completely ineffective in fighting inflation, inflation is going to continue to get worse and it's going to continue to exact a higher toll on the U.S. economy, ultimately pushing the U.S. economy into recession. In fact, look at the November PMI numbers that came out midweek. Not only was the number below expectations, forget about that, 
the prices paid number was the highest ever. But even if you just look at services, service prices rose two and a quarter percent in a single month, the month of November. You know, everybody wants to claim that, oh, the inflation is concentrated in goods. Well, not on the latest PMI numbers, two and a quarter percent in one month, right? That's the whole year, right? The Fed says, well, we're targeting 2% inflation over a course of a year, yet the prices that were paid for services rose 2.25% in the month of November alone. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So all of these pressures are building on prices in the United States, on the producer level, on the consumer level. So inflation is going to get much, much worse. And nothing the Fed is doing is going to stop that from happening. They are not going to fight inflation. The only thing they're going to put out is the speculative fire that's been going on in these high-flying, money-losing tech stocks and cryptocurrencies. But it's going to do nothing about the real problem of inflation. A few decades ago, private citizens were largely private. Well, what's changed? The internet, that's what. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all your data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was something once only celebrities worried about. But in today's era, everybody online has to be concerned. That's why to keep my data private when I go online, I use ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. In fact, did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is that they don't even have to tell you who they're selling it to and they don't need your consent. One of the data points they sell is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server that masks your IP address. So every time you turn on ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address that's shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify and harvest your data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smartphone, all you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. And it works especially well for people like me living in Puerto Rico where a lot of online content that I want to access is not authorized for my location. But when I use ExpressVPN, I can fool those sites into thinking I'm in Miami instead of San Juan. And now all that previously unavailable content is readily accessible. So if you're like me and you believe that your data is your business, then secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com gold and you can get an extra three months free off a of one year subscription. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com gold. In fact, I read another article about the Biden administration trying to blame the meatpacking industry for rising meat prices. Beef prices are up about 20% on the year. And Biden is saying it's because of these greedy businesses gouging their customers. And his proposal is for the government to invest something like a billion dollars in helping to create some kind of government cooperative so that the farmers who are slaughtering their stock can work with a government packaging company so that somehow it will be more efficient and prices would be lower. I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, if the government gets involved in meat packaging, it's going to be far more expensive than having the private sector do it. The idea that the private sector is inefficient because they're trying to make a profit and the way to keep prices down is to get the government in there because the government won't be greedy and isn't going to try to make a profit. Socialism doesn't work. Biden doesn't know that. Look at the stuff the government already runs. The post office, Amtrak. You think these things are efficient? 
No, they lose tons of money. That is the problem. If Biden actually did what he's planning on doing, the whole industry is going to become even less efficient and more expensive and consumers are going to end up paying even higher prices for beef. But of course, they're going to pay higher prices for beef because the Fed is going to continue to create inflation. Because again, even if the Fed raises interest rates slightly, the monetary policy will still be highly accommodative. And of course, what people don't seem to understand is inflation works with a lag, meaning that you create inflation, you print a lot of money, and the prices that rise in response to that money printing don't happen right away. They could happen years later. And so even if the Fed were to start to tighten policy now, the effects of the tighter policy may not show up in consumer prices for years. The reality is what we're seeing now in 2022, the seeds of this inflation were sown years and years ago. We had a much longer than normal lag this time around. So we've got a tsunami of inflation already in the pipeline. And so we're going to deal with that. Even as the Fed continues to throw less gasoline on the fire, it is a raging inferno and we've barely scratched the surface on what we're going to see. Now, as interest rates have been rising, there is a lot of discussion in the financial media about the significance of the increase and what it may portend for the stock market, for the housing market. After all, mortgage rates have backed up quite a bit this week as well. Corporations have a lot of debt. So there is a discussion about the implications. Of course, the discussions don't nearly contemplate how bad it's actually going to get. But nobody is really discussing the impact that this is going to have on the federal government. After all, the U.S. federal government is the world's biggest debtor. The national debt is just shy of $30 trillion, and it's pretty much all financed with T-bills, which, as I've been saying on this podcast for years, leaves the U.S. government, and therefore the U.S. taxpayer, very vulnerable to any increase in interest rates. So if the Fed does what it claims it's going to do and raises interest rates, that is going to immediately affect the cost of servicing the existing national debt and then, of course, funding any incremental increase in debt because we are still operating at huge deficits. Oh, by the way, before I continue, I want to point out one of my podcast listeners emailed me to correct me when I went over how much money the government spent in 2020 and 2021. And I looked at the increase in the national debt during those years, and there was about a $5 trillion increase in 2020. And so I assume the government spent the entire $5 trillion during that year. The fact is they didn't. A lot of the money they borrowed was sitting in their checking account and they didn't spend that money until 2021. So while they did increase the national debt by another, I think, $1.75 trillion or so, they actually spent over $3 trillion that year because they spent the money they borrowed in 2020 in 2021. Now, had the government been somewhat responsible, they wouldn't have spent that money. They would have paid down the debt because they would have realized that they didn't need it because they borrowed the money because they thought we were going to be in this big recession because of COVID. Well, by 2021, we were already out of the recession and they hadn't even spent the money yet. So what they should have done is basically paid back the debt Instead, they spent it anyway because they had all this money burning a hole in their pocket. Can you imagine politicians with a bunch of money and having the discipline not to spend it? You know, they always say you shouldn't say that politicians spend money like drunken sailors because it would be an insult to drunken sailors. Well, they spent all this money and that compounded the problem. But the point I was making is the impact that this is going to have on the cost of funding U.S. government debt. Now, the only thing that will somewhat mitigate the cost is that the government is going to continue to borrow on the short end. And so it's going to be taking advantage of these half a percent, one percent, two percent rates. They're not going to be selling a lot of 10-year U.S. treasuries, let alone 30. And by the way, where is the 10-year yield headed if the U.S. government follows through with its plan of gradual rate hikes, but more importantly, 
no more QE. In fact, QT, the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to be selling treasuries into the market, not buying treasuries from the market. Treasuries are headed much, much higher. I mean, I talked about 2002 earlier in the podcast. That's when the Fed slashed interest rates to 1% to stimulate a weak economy. The yield on the 10-year Treasury began that year at 5%, and it declined throughout the year. By the end of the year, it was at 4%. At a minimum, you would think that U.S. Treasury yields would have to rise to at least 4%, if not 5%, In an environment where we have 7% inflation, even if it falls to 5%, and where the Fed is not intervening in the bond market, we're going to be back up there. But of course, there's no way we can survive a 10-year Treasury yield of 5%, which is why I don't believe the Federal Reserve is actually going to end quantitative easing, because it's not going to sit by and allow yields to rise that much. So depending on how quickly yields back up, that's going to be how quickly the Fed does it about face and goes from talking about doing quantitative tightening to ramping up quantitative easing. Now, I want to get to some of the other economic data that came out this week. Before I get to the jobs numbers, I want to talk about the trade deficit numbers. We got the unified trade deficit, which includes our services surplus to offset our goods deficit. And we got another huge deficit, much bigger than what had been expected. The deficit for October was originally reported at $67.1 billion. That was revised slightly higher to $67.2 billion. But the November deficit, which was supposed to come in at $71.6 billion, came out at $80.2 billion, so much higher than had been expected. Driving the increase was a 5.1% surge in imports of goods Good imports hit a new all-time record high, $254.9 billion. At the same time, our exports of goods declined by 1.8% to $155.9 billion. So the rest of the world is able to produce more stuff, yet Americans are producing less. And somehow our economy is described as the envy of the world. We're supposedly have the strongest economic recovery, yet Our goods exports are shrinking and we are being forced to rely more than ever on the goods produced by other countries. Well, it's those other countries that have strong economies, not us. If we had a strong economy, they would be relying on the stuff we produce. Instead, because we have a weak economy, we rely on what everybody else produces and we rely on their stupidity to accept the dollars that we print for the stuff that they make. As you're ringing in the new year, it's time that you put aside your falling apart, scratchy, stained old sweatpants. Give your butt the 2022 upgrade it deserves and lounge like a champ with a new pair of Tommy Johns. Once you start wearing your Tommy Johns, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable and pretty much everything you do is going to feel better. And Tommy John's underwear has breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabrics with four times the stretch of competing brands. And you'll feel the same level of comfort layering on their luxurious soft loungewear right off the top. In fact, Tommy John loungewear is so comfortable and good-looking, you can and will be wearing them anywhere. With over 17 million pairs sold, Tommy John doesn't have customers They have fanatics. In fact, when I got my first pair of Tommy Johns and first experienced the ingenious quick-release horizontal fly, I was hooked. And now you can get 20% off your first order at TommyJohns.com slash gold. That's 20% off loungewear and underwear at TommyJohns.com slash gold. That's TommyJohns.com slash gold. See the site for details. But the big number that a lot of people were talking about today was the employment number for December. This is the final jobs report of the year. And everybody was looking for a strong report. You know, we had the strong ADP report that came out on Wednesday, almost double expectations. So a lot of people 
were looking for a number that was above the 400,000 consensus. But again, we ended up with a disappointing number, just 199,000 jobs created. There was an upward revision to prior months, including November, which was revised from 210,000 to 249,000. So that's an extra 39,000 jobs. But still, when you add the revisions to the number that we got from December, you're still well below the forecast. Now, of course, it's possible that next month they could revise the December number up. In fact, a lot of people are expecting that to happen. They just don't understand these numbers, especially if you look at the collapse in the unemployment rate all the way down to 3.9%. We didn't see a change in the labor force participation rate that held steady at 61.9%. So if we only created 199,000 jobs, how did we reduce the unemployment rate from 4.1 to 3.9%. I think one explanation for part of the reason that you have such a low unemployment rate with low labor force participation is maybe a lot of millennials who have been making a lot of money trading meme stocks and cryptocurrencies. They've got so much money, they figure, why have a job? I'm just getting rich off my crypto and my meme stocks. And ironically, you know, the Fed thinks that one of the reasons that they can raise rates to fight unemployment is because unemployment is so low. But when they create a reverse wealth effect by tightening policy and they prick these bubbles and they wipe out all these millennials that were counting on those paper profits instead of a paycheck, now all of a sudden these guys are broke and they're back in the labor force looking for jobs. And so the unemployment rate can spike up as all these people are now looking for a job to replace the paper wealth that they just lost. And a lot of these people may have been borrowing against their crypto profits or meme stock or other tech stock profits. And so then they got the margin calls and they're really wiped out and they desperately need jobs. And so they're looking for work in droves and you get a spike in the unemployment rate. And now this is a problem for the Fed. It's a dilemma because now unemployment is rising and they're still tightening policy because inflation is still getting worse. So what are they going to do? Are they going to ignore the increase in unemployment and keep tightening policy? Or are they going to ignore the inflation and instead focus on the increase in the unemployment rate and stop tightening? Now, some people are speculating a lot of people just kind of started their own business. And so they're not picked up because Maybe the birth death model didn't capture them and they don't officially have a job. They're just kind of doing stuff on their own. And so they're no longer unemployed. They're in the labor force doing work. They're just not an employee. So they're not showing up in the employment numbers. Private payrolls, again, much weaker than expected. They were supposed to grow by 363,000. Instead, they grew by 211,000. Manufacturing came in light supposed to be 34,000. We got 26,000. The big number though that I think spooked the bond market was the average hourly earnings both month over month and year over year. The month over month number was supposed to come in at 0.3. It came in at 0.6, double estimates. In fact, the range was from 0.2 to 0.5. So we came in above the upper end of the range and To add insult to injury, I guess, depending on your perspective, the prior month's 0.3% rise was revised to up 0.4%. So these are rising costs that businesses are ultimately going to pass on to their customers. So this is a very hot number when it comes to inflation. In fact, the year-over-year increase in hourly earnings was supposed to be 4.1% and it came out at 4.7%. Now that's actually below the upwardly revised 5.1% year-over-year rise from November, but still the 4.7% increase in wages is less than the 6.8% increase in prices. And of course, that's a November number. We haven't gotten the final read on consumer prices. I'm expecting the CPI for the entire year of 2021 to rise by 7% or more. And if you've got a 7% increase in prices, but only a 4.7% increase in wages, you don't need to be a mathematician to realize that workers are falling behind. And all these people who want to talk about rising wages, including President Biden, 
they neglect to point out that prices are rising faster than wages. And so even though people are being paid more, they're actually earning less. And, you know, the same thing applies to interest rates because I keep hearing people saying, hey, these rising interest rates, see, they're bad for gold because gold doesn't pay any interest. And in a rising interest rate environment, that's negative for gold. What hurts gold is not rising nominal rates, but rising real rates. Because the real return from a private saver or investor's perspective has to be netted from inflation. So if the inflation rate is 7% and interest rates go from 0 to 1%, you're going from losing 7% a year to losing 6% a year. How is that negative for gold? Do people want to lose 6% a year? See, it's not like people were holding gold because they didn't want to lose 7% a year. And then all of a sudden, the Fed raises rates to 1%. And they're thinking, wait a minute. So if I go back into the dollar, I'm only going to lose 6% a year? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I didn't want to lose 7% a year, so I bought gold. But now that I only lose 6% a year, yeah, I'm going to go back in the dollar. It doesn't work that way. In order to move the needle on the decision to be in gold versus dollar, from a private perspective, you need positive interest rates. So if the Federal Reserve went from interest rates at zero to, let's say, 10%, and if inflation was at seven, see, that makes a difference because now the person who's sitting in gold because they didn't want to lose 7% a year, all of a sudden, wait a minute, I can sell my gold and put my money in the bank and get 10% interest. Inflation is only 7%. That's a 3% real return. Do I really want to give up a positive 3% to sit in gold? Well, they may say no. So they're going to sell their gold and put their money in the bank to get a positive real yield. But nobody is going to sell their gold to lose less money than they would have lost had the Fed not slightly increased nominal rates. So people keep missing the point here. Nominal rates mean nothing. And the fact of the matter is, yes, the Fed is going to be raising interest rates slightly, but not nearly enough to cause rates to be positive. And as a matter of fact, I expect the inflation rate to accelerate faster than those rate hikes. So even as the Federal Reserve is slowly notching up nominal rates, real interest rates are actually going to be falling further. They're going to go to a bigger negative number than they already are. And so they're going to accelerate the reason to get out of dollars and into gold. And in fact, without the Federal Reserve buying all these treasuries and propping up the market, there's absolutely no reason to be in them. Some people might have been in treasuries thinking that they could scalp a little bit of money as the Fed bid up the market. But when you know the Fed is no longer in the market, in fact, the Fed is going to become a seller of treasuries, then you got nothing. You're going to get out and more and more people are going to be buying gold. But I want to get off the topic of actual gold and finish up the podcast by talking about fool's gold. Obviously, I mean Bitcoin. Bitcoin is off to a terrible start so far in 2022. In fact, it's down about 11% so far on the year. I think maybe on the week, it's down about 8%. But Bitcoin got a head start on the rest of the market because Bitcoin doesn't have a holiday. So Bitcoin was trading on January 1st when the stock markets were closed. So if you look at where Bitcoin ended 2021, it was around 47,200. And you look at where it is right now, which is slightly below 42,000, you've got an 11% decline. In fact, intraday, we dipped below 41,000 today in the price of Bitcoin. You know, one thing that's interesting, I was looking at the correlation between Bitcoin and that ARK Innovation Fund that I talked about earlier in the podcast. And it really is quite stunning. If you look at both of those securities, both the ARK Innovation ETF and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust hit their highs in February of last year. And since then, both the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and the ARK Innovation Fund are down 47% the exact same percentage. Now, if you measure the declines from the November highs, the Bitcoin trust is down 44% and the ARK Innovation Fund is only down 33%, but still very similar declines. And so far in 2022, you've got that ARK fund down 10 and three quarters percent and you've got the Bitcoin Grayscale Trust 
down 10 and a quarter percent. So almost identical performance. Again, Bitcoin down 11% so far on the year. By the way, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust finished the day at a 21 and a half percent discount to NAV. As a matter of fact, that trust is 20% lower than it was four years ago. So you could have bought that trust four years ago to get into Bitcoin because you got suckered in by a huge ad campaign and you wanted to buy Bitcoin. In fact, they say in their ads that this is the number one way to get exposure to Bitcoin. It's the favorite way for institutions to invest in Bitcoin. You're down 20% over four years. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ is up 150% during those same four years. That includes the recent decline. So if you wanted to speculate, you could have done so much better buying NASDAQ stocks than buying a closed-end fund of Bitcoin. In fact, even gold, as bad as gold's done, gold is up 40% during that time period. During the same time period where the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is down 20%, gold is up 40%. Well, the whole advertising pitch was, hey, you should drop your gold and buy GBTC. Well, if somebody did that in December of 2017, not only have they lost 20% in GBTC, but they've missed out on a 40% gain in gold. And again, if they wanted to gamble, they could have made a lot more money buying NASDAQ stocks. But more important than what that trust and Bitcoin have done in the past is what they are going to do in the future. There is incredible complacency right now among the faithful Bitcoin hodlers, even as a lot of the supposed institutions that got in are already cutting and running. I mean, clearly that's a big reason why the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is trading at a 21.5% discount. People want out and they're willing to take a haircut to get out. Those are not the real holders. The real holders don't own the Grayscale Trust. The real Bitcoin fanatics, they want their own private key. They own actual Bitcoin, right? They don't own the Grayscale Trust. They own their own Bitcoin and they ain't selling, right? They're holding and they're not even worried. And if you look at what's going on, clearly we're having a huge rotation out of the riskiest assets, companies that don't earn money, which of course includes Bitcoin because Bitcoin earns no money and pays no dividends. It's a high flying speculative asset and the air is coming out of this bubble and Bitcoin is going down along with everything else. The problem is Bitcoin has no fundamental substance to support it. See, a lot of these overpriced stocks have some area in which they would be valuable because they have an underlying business and they have underlying earnings. Now, that's not true for a lot of companies. A lot of companies have no underlying earnings. They just have losses. And so a lot of those companies, well, they can go to zero too. You know, we may set records from IPO to bankruptcy. A lot of companies that went public in 2021 might actually go bankrupt in 2022 because if they can't access capital markets for more money, how do they fund their losses? They can't. And then they go bankrupt. So that could be an interesting record to set. But of course, there are a lot of companies that are overvalued. And if they fall enough, they could become fairly valued and they eventually may be cheap and that will invite the bargain hunters. But there is no level at which Bitcoin will ever be cheap. Any positive price above zero is expensive. So when people talk about the opportunity to buy Bitcoin on the cheap, Bitcoin on sale, those opportunities don't exist. The only opportunity with Bitcoin is to sell because whoever buys it from you is going to lose. And in fact, I've mentioned this before because I've been encouraging people to sell their Bitcoin. And I was really pounding the table on my last several podcasts. And I feel badly too. I mean, yes, I want my listeners to avoid these losses, but I feel responsible because somebody is going to buy that Bitcoin. The only way you can sell your Bitcoin is if somebody else buys it. And I know that person who buys it is going to lose money. I'm basically encouraging you to help rip somebody off by selling them your Bitcoin. So part of me feels bad about it, but if they're going to buy Bitcoin, they're going to buy somebody else's. So they might as well buy Bitcoin from the people who listen to my podcast. But the problem is a lot of the people who are wedded to Bitcoin, they don't care what I say, right? They're going to hold on and hope because they think it doesn't matter. 
They take all sorts of false comfort from the fact that every time Bitcoin has crashed in the past, it's always come back. Well, past performance is no guarantee of future success. And one of these times, Bitcoin is going down for the count. It's not going to get back up off the canvas. It's going to stay down. And I think that may happen this time. Look at a chart. Right? Take a look at a long-term chart of Bitcoin, and it looks potentially ominous. Number one, you've got this head and shoulders top that is forming on the right part of the chart. And if you look at that, the left shoulder is a high of about 52,000, 53,000. The head comes up to about 69,000. And then the right shoulder has a high of about 52,000. So slightly shrugged, but not much. The neckline to me appears to be around 40,000, right? Right now we're trading 41,000, you know, 780 as I'm speaking. Interestingly enough, there was some support at 42,000, which was the crash low from early December when Bitcoin crashed all the way down to 42,000 or slightly below and then had a bounce. We're now below the low of that day. So I think it seems very high probability that we could take out the 40,000 or so neckline of this head and shoulders. And then the projection of that is a move down to about 30,000. But now if you zoom out on the chart and you look at what happens if we break 30,000 or 29,000 around there, then we have a massive double top on the long-term Bitcoin chart because we had a big rise and we had a high in early 2021 of about 65,000. That was about April 2021. Then we came back up and slightly eclipsed that high in November of 2021. And if we end up going back down to 30,000 because 30,000 is where we bounce because after we made that high of 65,000 in April, we crashed down below 30,000 in June. And then we rallied and made a new high. So if we go back down and then we take out that July low, which this head and shoulders top that's forming now would project that we would do if this pattern completes. Now, it hasn't completed yet. I'm just looking at the potential completion of that pattern. Then we will have a move back down there. And then if we break through 30,000, we have a massive double top and Bitcoin could easily crash down to 20,000, maybe 15,000 or lower very, very quickly. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen for sure, but if you look at the chart, there is a very decent probability that that is going to happen. And, you know, there's not really anything to stop it from happening. I mean, there's not a lot of daily volume to support a exodus from Bitcoin. I mean, I do think there are some guys like, you know, Paul Tudor Jones who got into Bitcoin, you know, the fastest horse of the race. My belief is that he's going to get out. If he hasn't already gotten out, he's getting out this year. And I think a lot of other funds that got in are going to get out. I mean, they're going to cut their losses and run. They got burned and that's it. They bought this thing as a safe haven. They believed all the hype by the Michael Sailors, like this was the best asset. In fact, I saw another crazy interview with Michael Saylor in which he claims that Bitcoin is the hardest asset that exists. He basically said that no other asset can compare. They're no good. He said value stocks aren't any good. He said real estate's no good. Gold's no good. Those are weak assets. Bitcoin is the only strong asset. Bitcoin is strong. Bitcoin is nothing. It's not even really an asset. I mean, it's, it, it, it doesn't pay interest. It doesn't pay dividends. It doesn't pay rent. You can't use it for anything. It's nothing. In fact, then he said, what if you want to put something aside for your great-great-grandchildren to have in 100 years, right? Because he said, you can't leave them real estate. You can't leave them stocks. You can't leave them gold. Really? You can't? You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who have inherited a lot of those assets from people who accumulated them 100 years ago. I mean, think about the Rockefellers, right? There's still some Rockefellers around. Where'd they get all their wealth, right? It was originally earned by their great-great-grandfather, John D. Rockefeller. You know, there was no Bitcoin. He was able to pass on a lot of wealth over 100 years using these so-called inferior assets like stocks and real estate. 
But Michael Saylor says, no, the only asset that you can confidently place in some kind of a trust where you're 100% guaranteed it's going to have a lot of value in 100 years is Bitcoin. How can he possibly make such an asinine statement? How can anybody know if Bitcoin will have any value at all in a hundred years? It's only been around for 11 or 12 years. So you have no idea. I mean, the jury is still out. It could just be a fad. I mean, the peak could be over. There's no way you could talk about a hundred years from now with any degree of certainty. I mean, certainly we'll have quantum computers by then that may have cracked the code, but how many more cryptocurrencies? Right now, we've got 16,000, almost 17,000 cryptocurrencies. Assuming that Bitcoin doesn't collapse, how many cryptocurrencies will we create over the next 100 years? Chances are at least one of them is going to be better than Bitcoin, if not a whole bunch of them. So the idea that you can confidently set aside Bitcoin for your great-great-grandchildren to inherit 100 years in the future is so asinine. It's insane, actually. And in fact, I think the more Bitcoin comes under pressure, the crazier Sailor gets. Now, obviously, MicroStrategy stock, too, is getting killed. I mean, it's obviously hitched to the Bitcoin wagon. MicroStrategy is already down 11.4% on the week. So it's down slightly more than Bitcoin. In fact, it's down over 63% from its 52-week high. Now, what I think MicroStrategy is going to have to do is sell more bonds so it has money to buy more Bitcoin to try to stop it from falling. But of course, they won't succeed. The price is going to keep falling. But imagine what's going to happen when they try to sell those bonds and they're undersubscribed. I mean, A, bonds are tanking, especially junk bonds, which is what MicroStrategy debt would be, especially if it's backed by Bitcoin. He's going to have a rude awakening if he tries to tap the bond market now in this environment. I mean, look what happened to GameStop shares today. I mean, they came out with this cockamamie strategy that they're going to create a marketplace for NFTs and they're going to partner up with crypto companies. Obviously, their whole business model doesn't work. The company is worthless, but the meme stock buyers, right, the Reddit raiders that bought it up. And the stock was initially up like 22% in the pre-market and immediately sold off. I mean, it got to up about 4 4.5%, I think, before the shorts that sold it in the morning covered. And so it ended the day up about 7%. But I think technically very weak. The stock's going down like all the meme stocks. All these speculative stocks are going down. That's desperate. But it's like these guys didn't get the memo. They don't realize that that ship has already left the port when it comes to crypto and NFTs. And I think the same thing is going to happen to MicroStrategy if it tries to go into the credit markets to borrow more money to buy even more Bitcoin. In fact, soon... MicroStrategy is going to be down on its Bitcoin. I mean, the last I looked, I forget how many Bitcoin they held, but their average price was about 30000 Now, I'm sure Michael Saylor has been in the market buying on the dip, and so he's been averaging up his cost basis as the price of Bitcoin has been coming down. Soon, those numbers are going to cross, and he's going to have a cost basis that exceeds the market value of his Bitcoin. And that is going to be huge because now he's been telling all these CEOs that they need to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. Well, when he has a giant hole in his balance sheet from all the Bitcoin he put on there. And by the way, if CEOs followed his advice and put Bitcoin on their balance sheet last year, they're getting killed. I mean, a lot of those guys, if they did it, would be fired for how much money they lost by gambling with their company's balance sheet. But you know who's already down? El Salvador. The president of El Salvador has been buying the dips, but he didn't start buying. I think the first time El Salvador bought Bitcoin, it was about 55000 or maybe even closer to 60000 and they've been buying the dips. So they are way underwater already, and they're going to continue to throw more good money that they don't have after bad money. They are stuck in a losing trade, and they're going to keep on throwing more money in that kitty. This is a huge disaster for El Salvador. Yet the point I made earlier is despite this ominous technical picture, despite the fact that you have this general run on risk assets and this rotation out of momentum into value, I mean, think about that. If people actually thought Bitcoin was gold on steroids, some high octane gold, and they were going to rotate 
from momentum to value, wouldn't they be selling their Bitcoin to buy actual gold? I mean, because we're already seeing that in the stock market. People are selling high multiple momentum stocks that they're not leaving the stock market. They are buying value stocks. They're buying stocks with lower PEs, higher dividend yields, stocks that have real earnings right now, not pie-in-the-sky expectations of earnings way off in the future, but real earnings right now. That's what investors are buying. Well, Bitcoin is all hopium. It's pie-in-the-sky. If Bitcoin is going to replace gold, it's not now. It's at some point in the future, right? Even a lot of these Bitcoin people say, well, Bitcoin is not really a store of value yet. It's going to become a store of value in the future. But in the short run, it's going to go way up. And when it ultimately becomes a store of value, it's going to be at some permanently high plateau. And that's when it's going to store value. But right now, we're speculating that it displaces gold. In fact, Goldman Sachs tried to fuel that speculation this week by coming out with a forecast that it thinks Bitcoin can go to 100,000, but it said it in the next five years. I don't know if those hodlers with the laser beams on their eyes are prepared to wait five whole years before they get 100,000 on their Bitcoin. But I think one of the reasons that Goldman Sachs was out there touting Bitcoin was because they probably have some Bitcoin that they want to unload. And so they're trying to put out some positive hype so they can create some buying to sell into because Goldman Sachs is notorious for doing privately the opposite of what it advocates the public does publicly. But to the extent that people were gambling that Bitcoin could become a store of value to replace gold in the future, but it's not there yet. And now they want to rotate out of a risk asset to a conservative asset that is a store of value right now. They would be rotating out of Bitcoin into gold the same way they're rotating out of momentum stocks into value stocks. So you've got that potential and you've got this ominous head and shoulders with an even more ominous double top staring people in the face and you've got maximum complacency. They keep making fun of me for being wrong, being wrong, being wrong on Bitcoin. And sure, I admit it. I could have bought Bitcoin years and years ago and made a lot of money. I didn't do it. But the people who bought it a long time ago and who didn't sell and who bought more in the last year, they're going to lose a lot of money. So who made the bigger mistake? Me for not making money or other people for losing a bunch of money? Meanwhile, I did invest in other things that are going to go up in value as Bitcoin comes crashing down. And the other problem, too, I think that a lot of people are going to have in Bitcoin is some of the people who have sold their Bitcoin think they got out, but they're still in because they may have sold their Bitcoin, but they got paid in Tether. And so they think those Tethers have value because, in theory, they're backed one to one by the dollar. But what if we're also headed to a crisis in Tether? Because, you know, when the tide goes out, that's when you see who's swimming naked. And I have a feeling there's a lot of nude swimmers over there at Tether. And the backup in interest rates and the run on speculative assets could produce a run on Tether. And so a lot of people, hey, you think you've sold. You haven't sold. You're still in because you got Tether. You don't actually have dollars and Tether can crash as well. In fact, a lot of problems are going to happen in the entire Bitcoin ecosystem when the market crashes. Because as I pointed out, a lot of people have been borrowing a lot of money against their Bitcoin collateral. Well, what happens when the market crashes? If we get a move down to 30,000 or below, a lot of people are going to have margin calls they can't meet, which is one of the reasons why we could immediately collapse down to 20,000, 15,000 or lower in a mass liquidation of margin-related Bitcoin collateral. So all this is staring people in the face, yet nobody is worried. Everybody wants to buy the dip. Well, as I said before, what happens when you buy the dip and it keeps on dipping? You think you're buying Bitcoin cheap at 40,000? What happens if it goes to 30,000? Then 20,000. Then you buy some at 20,000. You think you're getting a great deal and it goes to 10,000. And just because it's been at 20,000 or 30,000 before, it's no guarantee it's ever going to return to those levels. It can go from 20,000 to 10,000 to 5,000 to 1,000. It can go to zero and eventually it will go to zero. And unfortunately, a lot of money is going to be lost along the way. In fact, one of the interesting ironies here is that buying Bitcoin is actually making a bet on the establishment, on the Fed. You're basically betting on the Fed's ability to continue to 
keep all of these bubbles inflated because one of the bubbles is Bitcoin. And in fact, you're making a pro-dollar bet. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that so many of these Bitcoin whales are now so pro-dollar, like Michael Saylor. He talks out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he says, get rid of the dollar because it's toxic. On the other hand, he says the dollar's great and we need dollars because we're going to spend dollars and use them as a unit of account, but we're just going to save in Bitcoin because it's the only strong asset. So we save Bitcoin and transact in dollars. But if we actually had a crisis in confidence in the U.S. dollar, we would also have a crisis in confidence in Bitcoin if that crisis hadn't already happened, which I think is more likely. But here is my point. The argument that Bitcoin people make in support of Bitcoin is that, well, Bitcoin doesn't need to have intrinsic value because the dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's just a piece of paper. It's no longer backed up by gold. So it only has value because people believe in it. And so therefore, A currency can derive 100% of its value from faith and confidence. And so if the dollar can survive based on faith and confidence, well, then so can Bitcoin. And in fact, Bitcoin may even be better because the supply is capped at 21 million. So there'll never be more than 21 million. And so there's no reason to lose confidence in Bitcoin, whereas eventually people may lose confidence in the dollar. Well, you know what? If people do lose confidence in the dollar, all that does is highlight that when a currency is built on a foundation of confidence, it could fail because that foundation could give way. And so if people could lose confidence in the US dollar, what does that say about Bitcoin? I mean, how long has the dollar been around? I mean, it's been around off the gold standard for 50 years and people have had confidence in it. Bitcoin's only been around for a dozen years. And Bitcoin isn't legal tender in the United States. You can't use it to pay taxes. It's not the medium of exchange or the unit of account. If people can lose confidence in the dollar, they can easily lose confidence in Bitcoin. In fact, more likely. And so it highlights the fundamental flaw of Bitcoin. And it simply strengthens the argument for gold because gold is not based on confidence. It's based on the value of the metal. But the people in Bitcoin are so mentally deranged. I was on a television interview, I think on RT the other day, and there was some woman on there who was pro-Bitcoin. And I got so upset. I mean, I, I really had to tell her that she had no business coming on television and basically lying like that. But, you know, they give her a platform. All these crypto people have been given platforms to basically con people into this scam. But she was saying that, Gold has no intrinsic value. Gold is worthless. And Bitcoin has intrinsic value, right? The complete opposite of what's true. How can gold have no intrinsic value? You know, Shift Gold put out a article the other day highlighting the fact that this powerful telescope that NASA just sent out into space that's going to see way into the uh, universe, this telescope has these huge mirrors and they coated the mirrors, all of them, with gold. And the reason they chose gold was because of its reflective properties that no other metal had. So they went to the added expense of coating these mirrors with gold because obviously there were cheaper metals that they could have coated the mirrors with, but they didn't work as well. They needed gold because gold Gold has intrinsic value. That's why they needed it for these mirrors, right? So gold has intrinsic value. Bitcoin has nothing. You can't coat those mirrors in Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. Even if you had all 21 million Bitcoin, you couldn't even coat one millimeter of a mirror in Bitcoin because it doesn't do anything. But the fact that somebody comes on television and claims that Bitcoin has intrinsic value When the original argument in favor of Bitcoin was that it didn't need intrinsic value. At least early on, the Bitcoin proponents knew that Bitcoin had no intrinsic value. They just didn't think that intrinsic value was required. They kept saying, well, value is all subjective, right? It doesn't really matter. It has value because we think it has value. Well, that's the same reason that fiat currency has value. So at least in the early stages, the people in Bitcoin at that time understood that there was no intrinsic value. Now, the people who have been buying it more recently, the real suckers who are going to be the bag holders, these guys actually think that Bitcoin has intrinsic value when it clearly doesn't. And they think something like gold, which is all intrinsic value, has none. (music) 